2 Timothy 1, 13 through 18. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day, and you well know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. Thanks. Brenda, nice work getting the names. Not the easiest set of names. Well, good morning. First service, we did this without light and microphones. So, and uh, without a clock, so, uh, and nobody recording me. So I got to say whatever I wanted for as long as I wanted to say it. You're getting the tame version, I think, or something. When we were in grad school, Grace and I had uh, a, a close core of really close friends, and we had one couple that was kind of our best friend. And over the last several years, we watched their marriage just completely disintegrate. Uh, we watched as he dealt with some pain and, and kind of a faith crisis, and then she just abandoned him in the middle of that and then was gone, and she was gone. And so when we found out that it was really, really over, we had uh, him come visit us, and we continue to reach out to her, but haven't heard anything in years. Um, but he came to visit us, and we watched him struggle and wrestle with the crisis that, that this was all causing in him. And then when their divorce went final, a group of friends and I went up to visit him and be with him just the week of the, the divorce kind of going final. Uh, we were with him, and that was a weekend of a lot of tears and a lot of, we call that our burdens weekend, a lot of tears and a lot of sharing and a lot of stuff that we're all wrestling with. Um, in that group, during that time, we found out lots of things. So one had a job crisis that just, the career path he had chosen just had a complete dead end and it was done. And another, uh, his wife was diagnosed with brain cancer and they're still wrestling with that. Uh, another, just in the near, just after this weekend, um, uh, he had to confront his sin in a way that he hadn't had to deal with before. Long, long-standing sin that he'd um, kind of kept up. That group of friends had a lot of crises and still does. But we're grateful that by God's grace, all of that group has held on to Jesus in the middle of that. And that has changed the nature of our friendships and the nature of each of our relationships with God. Lots of life circumstances can totally change our understandings of ourselves and our understandings of God. Things like the loss of a spouse, job crisis, estrangement from our kids, the death of a family member, some kind of existential crisis, the fall of an important leader or the sinful fall of a Christian leader, the world telling us that it isn't what we thought it was, the fall of an institution or the reshaping of an institution that we thought was central to our faith. God invites us, and Paul is inviting us in this passage, to hold on 
Hold on in the middle of crisis. Holding on will lead to a strengthened faith, even though it will be one that looks different than what you went into the crisis with. A new sense of self and a new sense of God might emerge if you hold on to Jesus in the middle of that. In our passage today, Timothy is experiencing just that kind of crisis. He has been appointed Paul's representative in Ephesus, and uh, the churches around Ephesus, and maybe some of the folks, believers in Ephesus, are now abandoning Paul. Paul's representative, and he's being abandoned. Paul's being abandoned because Paul's in prison and about to die. So the guy that Timothy's been relying on is also leaving. Everybody's leaving Timothy. Timothy is going through crisis. Who is Timothy going to be under those circumstances? What is he going to hold on to? Or will he let go? And if he holds on, will he hold on in a sad, embittered kind of way? Or is he going to hold on with faith and love? Paul tells Timothy to hold on to the gospel. Follow the pattern of sound teaching. Protect the good deposit. And then he gives Timothy a couple of examples. Examples of what not to do and examples of what to do to hold on with faith and love. Let's pray and then dig into this passage together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the invitation to hold on to you and thank you that you are worth holding on to. Thank you that in the middle of crises, you are a stable place for us. You are a refuge for us. We pray that you would encourage us today to hold on with faith and love. Help us to be loving, faithful kinds of people, holding on to the good deposit. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Just again, a couple of reminders about 2 Timothy. First, Paul is writing this letter from prison where he's about to die. He's writing to Timothy who he says, you are going to take over my ministry. Timothy, you're going to take over for me, Paul says. So he wants Timothy to be not ashamed and to come visit him. That not ashamed language is important. We saw this last week. Honor and shame stands over uh, this whole letter, but also this passage. Honor-shame cultures work a little differently from ours. You on, in an honor-shame culture, you honor someone, you show honor to, and you associate yourself with someone who brings honor to the community. If someone dishonors the community, brings shame, you would dissociate yourself from them, kind of shun them, uh, remove yourself. So that's honor, shame. We're going to see some of that in action in our passage. Another quick reminder, we talked about the gospel last week. The gospel isn't explained in this passage, but it's centrally important to this passage. So let's just remember what Paul's gospel, as he's presented it here in chapter 1, God has saved us and called us. He saved us by sending Jesus, who was not ashamed of us or our shame, but suffered with us for our sakes. Jesus lived, died, and rose again physically to defeat death and bring life. And Jesus is now Lord over creation. So Paul's on a mission to invite the world to submit to that gospel, the good news of Jesus' victory over death and the fact that he is now Lord. Praise God. Quick outline of our passage. Begins 13 and 14, and these are parallel verses, and then 15 through 18. So 13 and 14... Uh, hold on to or follow the pattern of sound teaching or hold on to sound words. 
with the faith and love that come from Christ Jesus. And then protect the good deposit by the power of the Holy Spirit. So you can see how these are parallel. Hold on to the sound words, protect the good deposit in faith and love which are in Christ Jesus by the power of the Spirit. So Paul's saying one big thing uh, all together here, which is hold on to the gospel, protect it with faith, love, and in the power of the Spirit. So that's the order we're going to talk about things. And then in 15 through 18, 15 is the example of someone, some folks who are not holding on to the gospel. 16 through 18, example of, of one guy who really is holding on to the gospel and is not ashamed. Okay, let's dive in. Protect the good deposit. Hold on to the pattern of sound words. Again, the good deposit is the gospel. God has saved and called us. Jesus is victorious over death. Jesus is now Lord over creation. It's also the mission to take that gospel to the world. Paul's gospel is, and the good deposit is, we are on mission. We are heralds, messengers of that victory. We are messengers of this new king. So Timothy is taking over for Paul. Paul's ministry is done, and he knows it. Timothy is now going to take over. As one commentator has put it, Paul is not simply calling Timothy to a renewal of his previous duties. He's preparing him to be a successor on mission. So that's what he's telling Timothy to do, and we have the same mission. We get to announce the same victory. Death has been defeated. Jesus is Lord. Praise God. So how then do we hold on to these sound words? How do we hold on, protect the gospel? Well, a couple different things we might say. First, we protect the gospel by protecting ourselves from false gospels. So one of the ways that we do that, and uh, Chuck did a good job of reminding us of this at staff uh, this week, one of the ways you do that is you know the real gospel, (laughs) As um, counterfeit money, you, you notice the counterfeit by knowing what the real one looks and feels like. We worship a living God. The gospel is not dead truths, dead propositions. It's the look and feel of a new kingdom with a living Lord. So we got to know him, don't we? It's really important that we know this living Lord. It's a living gospel, a living person. One of the ways that we might think about how to get to know him, one is that we might read the gospels. So I invite you to to spend some time getting to know our Lord by reading the gospels and not just like reading them for head knowledge, of course. We read to get to know him. One of the ways that the church has done this for years is we put ourselves, we can imagine ourselves in the story by prayer, prayerfully putting ourselves in the story and imagine, okay, what does is, what is this look and feel and sound like? Who is this Jesus person? What is he like? How do I get to know him? He's flesh and blood. I want to know that person. So that's one example. Another thing uh, I invite you to is read Paul's letters, but read them with a the lens of what is he actually saying that the gospel is? Because remember last week when we looked at the gospel, it wasn't the kind, he doesn't use the words that I'm used to him, I'm used to thinking of when I think of the gospel. There's no sin or righteousness in his presentation of the gospel last week. It's his victory over death and the fact that he's Lord. 
So get to know Paul's actual gospel. Of course, sin and righteousness are important parts of his gospel as we read through all of his letters. But get to know what he says. What is he talking about when he talks about the gospel? He's talking about Jesus. Another way that we can get to know the gospel, get to know the truth of the gospel, is by participating together, as we're doing this morning, in corporate worship. When we worship together, when we sing the truth of the gospel, when we ingest Jesus' body and blood, when we pray together, all of these are ways, when we give, uh, when we serve one another, all of these are ways that we enflesh, that we embody the gospel. We get to know it from the inside, right? So it's not just, again, dead truths, propositions. Do they line up with this proposition? But we get to know, does this feel right? When a false gospel hits us, does it feel right or does it feel wrong? In the sense that we know what Jesus feels like. So I invite you to continue to worship with us. You're already, you're already doing that. But I'm glad you are. Another thing we need to pay attention to is the messages of the culture. To know what the false gospels are, we got to know what our own cultural lenses are because we see, when we see the gospel, we see through our own lenses. And we have particular lenses that are given to us by our culture that aren't gospel. Those lenses are things that we're putting on that the culture is telling us are true, but may or may not actually be true. And they're going to shape the way that we understand the gospel. So we've got to seek to recognize the, the lenses, the messages of our culture. So a couple messages that we could talk about. One is kind of our generational lenses. This is a big deal in culture right now. It's a big deal in the church right now. Our generations are seeing the world differently. And that's okay. They're just lenses. That's not necessarily wrong. But we need to recognize that and pursue one another in love. Let's listen. All of the generations together is how we're going to get the gospel most in flesh, most fully real. Some of the things that we talked about last week. Our culture is a culture of death. Let's not be a culture of death. Our culture is a culture of like pursuing success as opposed to faithfulness. Our culture values money in particular ways and places value based on the monetary value that something brings or someone brings. That's an uh, especially strange and awkward way of valuing someone. Our culture also loves, because we fear death so much, we love comfort and safety. That's not true of Paul, for example. Our culture loves freedom. And in particular, our culture loves freedom from. Freedom from things like tight community that, has, um, a, that I am accountable to, that I have responsibility toward. We love freedom from authority. And even we're discovering we love freedom from truth. Our culture also rejects the body, the physical body. Our culture doesn't believe that our bodies were put together with care by a creator who loves us. So our culture believes that we can recreate our bodies and do whatever we want with them. Notice how not all, but some of these cultural messages are okay. 
They're just different cultures doing things differently. But some of them are lies. And when we combine the gospel with the lies of our culture, we create something like this intertwined false gospel. And we need to be aware of what those messages are and know where we're believing the culture instead of the gospel. If we can, we need to disentangle as much as possible the truth from the lie and seek the truth. Okay, so Paul tells us to protect, Paul tells Timothy and then us, to protect the good deposit. He says to do that with faith in verse 13, in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. So he says, do that with faith. Faith, by the way, is just reliance on, allegiance to, complete trust in the gospel. If the gospel falls apart, if the gospel's not true, I have no backup plan. That's faith. There's nothing left for me to fall back on. If the gospel's not true, then I am ruined. Or as Paul says in other places, I am man most to be pitied. So we commit to the mission of the gospel by the tools of the kingdom. That is, I'm not going to use the culture's tools because that's a way of kind of setting up a backup plan. You know what I mean? So I'm going to use the kingdom tools because if we don't, we're undermining the message. It's like, it's like when my kids are screaming at each other and I scream at them to stop screaming. You know? Definitely I've done that. Uh, I undermine the message. I might get them to stop for a moment, but what that does is to teach them to scream when they want something. It's not like the method undermines the message. I had a conversation this week with a friend and we were talking about abortion and so we were talking about if you're, if you're following Jesus, we're pro-life people. Jesus has defeated death. We now live in a kingdom of life. Now, if you're just anti-abortion, that is not pro-life, but anti-abortion, then you might make the argument, you might try and make the argument that blowing up abortion clinics would save lives. There's a certain kind of logic to that, Right? But of course, what that does is undermine the whole message. That's not a pro-life message. You're, you're trying to bring life by participating in death. And the pro-life messenger becomes an instrument of death. You're undermining the message. So are we undermining the message or are we walking in faith? There are ways that we in the church can try and spread the message of the gospel in ways that actually are sharing the cultural messages. These things that are mixing the culture with the gospel and creating false allegiances and false gospels. Here, here's a, a, a list of ways we might do that. When we spread the church by dividing generations from one another... We're undermining the message. When we value success above faithfulness, when we, the church, ally ourselves with this culture of death, when we trust in money and numbers to spread the gospel, when we need our communities to be comfortable and safe, again, that wasn't Paul's way, 
When we advocate freedom from things like tradition, authority, truth, community, or when our theologies separate our bodies from our souls, when we do those kinds of things, we're undermining the gospel itself. We're failing to protect the good deposit, and we're instead flirting with false gospels. This is not holding on in faith, but walking away in shame. We hold on in faith by recognizing the things that cause us things like, feelings like, anxiety, anger, and fear, and we seek to understand these emotions. Sometimes we experience anxiety, anger, and fear because we're holding on to things that we know deep down we can't or shouldn't defend. That there are untruths or mistruths that we might be believing that are mixed in with the truth. My experience, and you may have a different experience, but my experience has been that when I'm faithfully trusting in Jesus, when I'm relying on him and sharing his gospel, it gives me confidence, not anxiety. It causes me to rest rather than to get angry with those who disagree with me. It causes me maybe have disappointment for them that they don't yet believe the truth, but it doesn't cause me anxiety. It doesn't cause me to need to defend I do have experience with anxiety and shame. I've been in a season of kind of shame for the last several months, uh, walking with good friends and people who are praying for me and all that. I invite your prayers. Uh, I always invite your prayers, um, and I would always welcome them. Uh, but my experience with anxiety and shame, at least part of that shame, and I don't want to say that all anxiety or shame comes from believing lies. That's not what I'm trying to communicate. But part of my anxiety or shame comes from believing lies, in particular lies about myself and failure, having to do with failure and success, that I'm not the kind of success that I ought to be or that I'm a failure in some way. By God's grace, and I'm very grateful for this, that feeling of anxiety or shame has led me to lean into Jesus. Again, that's his grace on me. Um, but the reality is when I feel that anxiety, what I've been able to do, again, by his grace is to use that feeling of shame or anxiety as an opportunity to lean into him in a new way. So when I feel that shame, I go, okay, Jesus, this is yours. I give this to you. I offer this to you. I don't know quite where it's coming from. Would you teach me truth? Would you offer me your grace in the middle of that? And I found that it's very impactful for me. I've gotten into also just imagining his arms around me and then resting in that. There's not a lot, like, there are some moments where truth is coming to me, but mostly it's a feeling of his uh, love and care for me. Again, getting to know, getting to feel like what this Jesus is actually like. So I invite you to do the same. Let our feelings move us toward Jesus and give us opportunity to rest in him. He is good. Okay, so we, Paul invites Timothy to protect the good deposit with faith. He also invites Timothy to protect the good deposit with love. Our love reveals the gospel. When we abandon one another or divide from one another, rather than choosing to suffer with them in love, we are undermining the mission. We're working against what we say we believe. But when we forgive in love, when we reach out to one another, 
even when we disagree, when we care for the needs of others, when we visit the sick, when we visit those in prison, when we serve the needy, when we demonstrate the gracious character of God, we show that we believe the gospel is true. That God has saved us and that Christ has abolished death and brought life. I had a great example of that this week for me. Um, a friend of mine was concerned about some things that I'd said. And so he came to me. Rather than going and talking with other people, he said, I'm concerned about things that you're saying. So we had a great coffee uh, time this week. It was a great gathering, a great time of being together where we heard one another well. And I felt honored uh, and cared for and loved in the middle of that. He was concerned that I was abandoning the good deposit. So he came to me. Praise God. May we all act like that. May we all love one another in that kind of way. And I, I commit to you that when I see things in you that where we disagree or where I'm concerned about the good deposit, the gospel might be compromised, I commit, I will come to you. And I ask you to commit the same to me and to one another. May we be a people who, in the middle of disagreement or shame or any of that, may we be a people who are committed to each other in love by God's power. And I say by God's power because that's only possible by the power of the Spirit in us. That's where Paul goes next. Protect the good deposit through the Holy Spirit who lives in us. The power of God is in us. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is available to us in the same Holy Spirit that lives in Jesus' church. He is in us. So the Spirit is in us when we read the gospel when we listen to it read or preached or read it together in community, the Spirit of God is in us. The Spirit is in us when we worship together as we are this morning, when we take communion together, as we proclaim reality in song, when we read scripture and pray together. The Spirit is in us when we serve one another, living out faith and love in gracious ways. The Spirit is in us as we use the gifts that God has given us to minister to one another. The Spirit is in us even when we sin. <laughs> even when we're tempted. But the Spirit reminds us, it gives us power so that we don't, we don't have to submit to temptation. Of course, we will at times give in to temptation. We're just human. But we can hold on to the reality that sin is no longer enslaving us. We are under the power of the Spirit, not under the power of sin. We live under grace. And the Spirit is in us, empowering us to forgive one another in love, as God has forgiven us in Christ. The Spirit is in us, living out the life of Jesus Christ in and through us, so that we have the power to protect the good deposit as the community of faith and as individuals within that community of love. So we protect the good deposit with faith, love, and by the power of the Spirit. Praise God. And then in verse 15, Paul moves on to those to talk about an example of one who's not, couple, who are not holding on to the gospel. Philegus and Hermogenes have left. Along, Paul says, many others in Asia also have left. And Paul implies that they are ashamed of his imprisonment, and by extension, they're ashamed of his gospel. Can you imagine your name going down in history for abandoning Paul? 
How terrible. It's the only reason we know these two people, because they abandoned Paul. Their names aren't written anywhere else. He's in pain over being abandoned by them. Rather than staying to suffer with him, they were ashamed and left him. Because he's shameful. He's a prisoner. He's going to die. But in abandoning Paul, they have also abandoned the gospel. The deposit, which was entrusted to Paul and to Timothy. They are teachers of a false gospel. And we don't know all the details of this false gospel. We're going to see more of this throughout the book of 2 Timothy. More of this false teaching. But we think perhaps what we do know is that they were teaching something like uh, the fact that there will be no bodily resurrection. That death really has won when it comes to our bodies. Now, false gospel always leads to some kind of uh, false behavior. And so what we see in them, or what we think we might see, is things like either um, a really, really strict legalism, like you have to put your body under like very serious rigors, and anybody who breaks the rules is in a lot of trouble. Or, well, what happens in the body doesn't matter. It's not going to be resurrected anyway. So I can do whatever I want. Those are typically, when we neglect the body, those are typically two of the responses that we get. Jesus has not deserted us. He is faithful to us even in our sin and shame. He invites us to follow him and suffer with others as we talked about last week. He has defeated death and he physically rose from the dead as proof that he is Lord and that we will get to rise with him. Amen. So forget those guys. Let's talk about Onesiphorus. Now, okay, so those guys are remembered only for abandoning Paul. We only know Onesiphorus' name because he cared for Paul. Like, imagine that. You're, the one thing you're known for in history is that you stuck, stuck it out with Paul. That's pretty awesome. Paul, okay, so Paul is in prison in Rome. Onesiphorus was in Ephesus. And Onesiphorus made the very long journey of getting himself all the way to Rome just because he knew Paul was in prison. He didn't know where Paul was in prison, so he has to search all over Rome. You can imagine him knocking on jail cell doors, right? He doesn't know where Paul is, but he's going to make every possible effort to find him. And then he's a refreshment to Paul, Paul says. Onesiphorus is not ashamed of Paul's imprisonment or his coming death. Onesiphorus wants to be with Paul. So he brought Paul refreshment. And it, Paul doesn't say that he like, brought him lemonade and that was refreshing. Right? Paul is refreshed by the fact that Onesiphorus showed up. It's his presence. It's his effort that Paul is refreshed by. There's no language. He refreshed me in this kind of way. No, he refreshed him by showing up. We can be refreshers to one another just by the gift of presence, can't we? It's an amazing gift when you're hurting, when somebody shows up for you and makes that kind of effort. I mean, even if he wasn't much of a refreshment, you'd be refreshed if someone, you know, crossed an ocean and 
came to seek you out among jail cells. That would be refreshing. So Paul clearly intends to tell the story of Onesiphorus as an example to Timothy, an encouragement. Timothy, you can come and do the same. He's going to invite him later in the book. Please come and in fact, bring my cloak. He wants Timothy's presence because Timothy is a refresher for Paul. May we be that kind of refresher for one another. May we care for one another, show that kind of effort, and just be a presence for one another. We can also refresh one another by guarding the gospel in our dealings with one another, pointing out the work of God in each other's lives, speaking the truth about God's resurrection power as we encounter it in each other. Okay, so let's hold on like Onesiphorus. Let's not abandon the truth or abandon one another. Again, in this passage, Paul invites Timothy and us into a Jesus-centered life where we hold on to him in the middle of the crises of our lives, in crisis, like Timothy's crisis, like Paul's crisis, our own crises. Let's hold on to the gospel, protect the good deposit. Jesus invites us to hold on to him, to protect the good deposit of truth in faithful and loving ways, empowered by the Spirit of God, in community and with one another. Remember, he chose us. He has saved us. He has defeated death, and he's making life come to light through the gospel. He was not ashamed of us, but he suffered with us for our sakes. He took on our shame, and he has conquered death and sin and defeated death, defeated sin, and brought life through his death and resurrection. Jesus is Lord. Praise God. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Spirit, we give you praise this morning. We're grateful for all that you have accomplished for us in Jesus Christ.